0: Our scripture reading this morning should be very familiar to most of you. It comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And it reads, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. May God help us apply these words to our lives. So this is one of the most recognizable scripture readings because it's often the reading of choice at weddings. Paul wrote it in his first letter to to the uh, Corinthians to the church in Corinth uh, in Greece in 55 AD after helping to found a church there. And it was written in response to the Corinthians asking Paul for additional guidance after the church was up and running. Today we associate it with romantic love. Love between spouses. What's sometimes referred to as chosen love. It all sounds very admirable. It makes it sound like love is gentle. You might envision a couple of romantic lovebirds sitting by a fire cuddled up when this is read. It's like when you've found your romantic partner, this is what you should do. But many of you know that the Greeks had several different words for love. Because after all, love does come in many forms. And it gets expressed in different ways, depending on the situation and who the subjects and the objects are. In Greek, there is eros, which is romantic love. Philia, which is brotherly love or friendship type love. Storge, which is family love between a parent and a child or between siblings. And then, of course, there is the highest form of godly love, which is agape. And this passage in Paul's letter is about agape. It's actually not about romantic love. Paul isn't giving us platitudes for how to treat our spouse. He's describing the highest form of love, agape, or God's love for us, which is the love from which all other forms of love derive. This morning I'm going to discuss this passage's application to brotherly love. Quite literally, I'm going to address love between me and my brothers. And to do that, I need to tell you a personal and very strange story. And it's about my family. Don't worry, my family is totally cool with my telling this. Um, i vetted it with them, including my children and my wife, Peggy. Uh, So on a summer afternoon in June of 2018, I got a text message from one of my brothers, Peter, and he asked me, do you have time to talk right now, urgent? So my brother, Peter, is an obstetrician. He's not um, prone to hyperbole, he's very calm. So I knew that this must be important when I saw the words right now and urgent. I have three brothers, Peter, Paul, and Michael. I'm the oldest, Michael, Is our youngest and he lives and works in a major European city. I called Peter and he told me he had received an unusual and concerning email from Michael saying that Michael needed help desperately. Those were his his words. Michael was 43 years old. He was single, lived alone. He went on in his email to Peter that he was leaving his home in a few days and he wouldn't be able to return. He said that because of certain things that he had done, his emails were being monitored. And he concluded his email with two desperate words, please help. He sent subsequent emails to Peter saying that people were after him and that there were also cameras inside his apartment. He said he, was, he no longer had his phone or any money and he was being kicked out of his apartment building and his neighborhood for things that he had done. We had no idea what he was happening, what he was talking about. Obviously, we were very worried. I didn't think that he was in the intelligence service or some sort of dangerous profession living undercover, but it sounded like something very strange was going on, and who knows? Because Michael no longer had his phone and didn't live with anyone and we didn't know any of his friends, we couldn't speak to him. We could only speculate on what was going on and figure out how we could help. You see, he was sort of a recluse. He buried himself in books. He wasn't connected to anyone really, not even his family. And he was sort of checked out. He was dismissive of many things that we take for granted in this country, some capitalist values. He shunned. Technology and other sort of mainstream comforts. Didn't have a lot of money. He was living paycheck to paycheck. We assumed that he had run up significant debt and that there were some thugs who had threatened him, had stolen his phone, had hacked his computer, and they were going to kill him. We thought it was possible that he had been involved in some criminal activity, of course. Um, All kinds of things went through our heads. And given how disconnected he was, there were a lot of possibilities. Later that night, about 12 hours into this mystery, we learned that for some time, Michael had been addicted to cocaine. And he was experimenting over a multi-day drug fest with ecstasy and coke, and he had partied for several days straight without sleeping. And the drugs and the lack of sleep were causing him to spiral into a delusional paranoia, He was hallucinating. It was all a drug-induced delusion. When he went outside his apartment, he saw people staring at him and whispering about him. His hallucinations were so bad that he heard voices in his apartment building talking about him, and he believed he was being watched and that his computer had been hacked. His delusion was so real that he destroyed his phone, He threw it in the toilet, he drew all the blinds, and he began crying for help. As a trio of fairly tight, highly achieving brothers, Peter, Paul, and I knew exactly what we needed to do at that time. We went into one of those crisis modes, thinking hour to hour, coordinating a multi-step plan. We knew we needed to figure out where he was, how to put someone with him who could protect him and get him on a plane and wrap our arms around him as soon as possible. We went into action to extract him from where he was. Through a contact that I had in country, I managed to hire a guy who was literally getting off his shift as a nightclub bouncer who went to find Michael. He found him and he reported back that Michael was safe. I then replaced that guy with someone who could be Michael's personal security for the next day around the clock and protect him from himself, while my brothers and I figured out how to make sure he had his passport and get him to America as soon as possible. 48 hours later, Michael was on a plane to America and I picked him up at JFK. We then researched and got him into a 30-day inpatient rehab program. My brother Peter dropped him off there as Michael broke down, sobbing in emotional pain. Then, after living hour to hour for a few days, we all crashed. Peggy and I, my brothers, and the rest of my family. For a moment, we reflected on how that intense and immediate cause led us to drop everything else in our busy lives and brought us together. And that force that drew us to one another was most definitely a certain type of love. It was some form of storge or familial love, not chosen love like Eros. None of us chose the relationship that we had with one another. We just happened to have been born to the same parents. We were, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, the four loves simply bonded by chance and circumstances. Lewis describes storge as, quote, dependency-based love, which risks extinction if the needs cease to be met. Here, my brothers and I were dependent on one another around a cause, and the storge, by necessity, reengaged us. But after that immediate need dissipated, what were we supposed to do? Michael didn't want to stay in America. When he got out of rehab, he told me he was returning to Europe. My immediate response was, no way, with probably at least one expletive in there. I remember saying to him, dude, you need to make some radical changes and live a monastic life to heal for a while. I had taken his passport, and I told him I wasn't giving it back to him. I argued that he didn't have any support structure in Europe. He'd be returning to the place where he got messed up, and he was going to end up dead in an alley. His response was just as indignant. He argued rightfully that he had a secure job in Europe. All of his personal belongings were in his apartment. And by the way, he didn't particularly like America. Moreover, he was an adult, and it wasn't up to me whether he stayed in America or returned to Europe. He wasn't having any of my monastic life idea. And frankly, he may have felt as if he no longer needed us. The storge form of love had dissipated after the need was gone, just as C.S. Lewis described. I had no clue how to handle this. And I relied deeply on Peggy for guidance and support. Different people in my family and on on his professional medical teams had a range of different and legitimate views. Some thought we shouldn't give him his passport to return, while others thought he was an adult, he had gone through a rehab program, and ethically, we couldn't make decisions for him. Some thought he had to reintegrate into his life in a healthy way, and that because he was employed in Europe, it would be best for him to return there with the support of a professional, who he could rely on in country. What was my role? What could I do? When we were making decisions and mobilizing into action to find him and get him back to America, we knew exactly what to do. The Loving Act was clear, and there was no disagreement. The Loving Act at that time was just that, an act. We had the resources to execute, We knew how to analyze the situation objectively. We were doers. But when it came time for the next move, we were at a total loss. There was no playbook for figuring out the right thing to do in this situation. When the immediate need evolved into a longer term need, and the longer term was about to begin. There was no dispassionate analysis, no resources, no money that was going to solve this dilemma. And yet I felt idle, not loving. I felt idle when I wasn't acting. This was obviously someone we cared deeply about. He needed to heal, and we all wanted to help him do that. He needed our attention. He needed to be seen and heard by us. But what did that mean in terms of our actions? What were we supposed to do? In our lines of work, you had to do something to contribute to help achieve the goal. You didn't just sit back and cogitate. The truth of the matter, although I didn't know it at the time, was that dependency-based love between siblings had to give way to another form of love. So one day during the course of trying to figure this out, I, I stumbled into my daughter Vicky's bedroom. And she had this bumper sticker that read, Sometimes I wrestle with my demons, sometimes we just snuggle. And I laughed at Vicky's sort of weird humor, but her bumper sticker made me pause. It seemed apt for the situation at the time. There was some deep truth in that bumper sticker, and I thought about that. We all have demons. God knows I do. I am seriously flawed. One of my worst demons is that I have an acerbic tongue that I've often used to provoke the people I love most, my family. My tongue can be evil, and it's gotten me into trouble. Now, I'm working on that. But what does it mean to snuggle with your demons rather than wrestling with them? Wrestling was what my brothers and I did with everything, including each other. We were fixers. We were problem solvers. That's what you got credit for. When there was an immediate, identifiable need, we knew how to snap into action. But as I thought about it, I came to the view that Michael and his demons were not a problem that I was called upon to fix. He wasn't a puzzle that I was called upon to solve. Unlike the first 48 hours, this wasn't the time when we were being called into action, which is the way I had always viewed my role in life. Yet this was a time when I was being called simply to be, quote, patient and kind, as St. Paul writes. Bear all things, as Paul writes. Bear all things in Michael with no agenda, no conditions, or any expectation or hope for what the future for Michael held. That was agape love, the godly love we could only aspire to. To quote, believe in and hope for Michael, as St. Paul writes. Not hoping for any particular outcome, just hoping for him without judging or predicting the likelihood of a successful recovery. Not impose my values and lifestyles and ideas on him. Just be with him. No advice, no admonitions, no platitudes. Just see him and treat him as whole, yet imperfect, not defined by his actions. Brian Stevenson, um, many of you know him. There was a film called Just Mercy that came out a few years ago with um, um, Michael P. Jordan playing Brian Stevenson. Um, and I put the quote in the bulletin. He's a lawyer who's devoted to representing folks on death row as part of his equal justice initiative. And he's quoted as having said, Each of us is more than the worst thing we have ever done. So simple and so true. Recognizing the wholeness of a person. That is what God does with his creation in its entirety and in its individual components. That is why God's forgiveness and connection to creation is so powerful. Our transition had to be from love in action, that is, love by necessity, to love in being, that is, voluntary love, that as C.S. Lewis puts it, exists regardless of the changing circumstances. It meant putting aside my preconceptions of what a good and proper, what a productive life should be, the disciplinary boundaries one should impose on himself, the structure one needed to have. It meant letting go of how life should be and deeply living in how life is. The way life is, is imperfect. It's messy. It's unpredictable. And it hurts. In this situation, it meant accepting Michael for all his attributes, including his demons frankly, as we all need to do more with, our, with ourselves. That is agape, godly love. Now, this does not mean accepting or condoning his drug use. It meant seeing him as more than a user of drugs. We're all packages of imperfect characteristics, flawed members of humanity, and love does not always call us to wrestle with our demons to fix something we regard as broken. Sometimes it calls us to just snuggle with our demons or with others' demons. Richard Rohr, who many of you know, the uh, well-known contemplative Franciscan, writes, "'We come to God not by doing it right, "'but by doing it wrong. "'And yet the great forgiveness is to forgive ourselves for doing it wrong. That's probably the hardest forgiveness of all, that I'm not perfect, that I'm not unwounded, I am not innocent. One always learns one's mystery at the price of one's innocence. If I want, this is continuing with Roar, if I want to maintain an image of myself as innocent, superior, righteous, or saved, I can only do that At the cost of truth. Sometimes it's most effective to love as is, not try to make better, and be aware of how the source that gave us love, God, assists and guides and opens us to new possibilities. I don't regard that as surrendering or giving up. Far from it. It requires immense fortitude and patience and self examination and awareness. It isn't easy to throw out the life playbook and connect in the deepest way possible with someone through the most profound God given gift of love. So when Paul writes that love does not insist on its own way, sometimes translated outside of the NRSV, as love is not self-seeking. This is love that doesn't have an agenda. Love that isn't designed to mold others to your way of seeing the world. That doesn't mean it excludes civil exchange of perspectives, deep debate, deep intellectual argument. That's important, but it does not, but it, it, it does mean that the end game is not to change someone for the sake of winning, or achieving or getting others to conform to a certain way of life, it means accepting that we are imperfect beings, that we all have demons, and that snuggling with demons is not accepting them. It's just loving the wholeness of one another, the wholeness of creation. Reflecting on Vicky's bumper sticker didn't mean that it would be easy street for the next several weeks and months but at least it gave me a foundation on which to base my behavior and words, if any at all, to Michael. And the crazy thing is that when we snuggle, rather than wrestling with our demons, that love can prompt a profound rebirth and evolution. When Serena Williams announced that she was no longer going to compete after this year's U.S. Open, She said, I don't like the word retirement. She said she preferred to characterize her move as evolving away from tennis toward other things that are important to me. I think that what Serena said reflects the love of self that, in Paul's words, hopes all things and believes all things. Love, as Paul describes it, makes the most glorious and beautiful things possible self-improvement, recovery, healing, evolution, and rebirth into a new way of life. Back to Michael briefly. He made plans to return to Europe. I gave him his passport and a plane ticket, and we agreed to daily WhatsApp check-ins with my family, in addition to many other things to try to keep some guardrails on him. For example, I had access to his credit card and bank information. I could check on his spending. The ensuing years weren't easy. He relapsed a few times. He removed access, my access to his financial records. And there were times when he went dark and we didn't know what was going on with him. Today he's doing well. I would have said thriving, but he wouldn't say that. He'd say he's surviving. He's struggling. And he's right. But he's living. He knows how to love. He knows how to receive love and support. He's walking through life with a supportive woman by his side. He's working. He's taking care of his body. And he's connected more deeply than ever with his family. And I couldn't find a greater inspiration than that. Four years later, our daily WhatsApp messages continue. It's dwindled to a mere exchange of good mornings. Michael, who's up the earliest, begins with good morning. Peter responds, because he's on call at 4 a.m., with good morning. I just say morning. And others who get up around the country respond with a morning. Seems rote, but just taking a few seconds to pause and write is also an act of love. It's an acknowledgement of acceptance in whatever state you're in. It means you're someone in my life, someone I'm thinking about, even if just for a few seconds in that moment. Now, strangely enough, I don't regret that my family had this experience. I'm not happy we had it. And I don't want it to happen to anyone else. But I don't regret it. I no longer assign any value to it whatsoever. I embrace it as life's unfolding. I've learned how to love things as they are, not as I wish them to be. I've learned to love without resenting the anguish we endured dealing with Michael's situation. And it's a miraculously powerful thing to have the love that Paul describes. Amen.